you should be smart enough to know the areas that you're weak and be smart enough to know if someone's trying to screw you over. But other than that, focus on what you're exceptional. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is Follow Along Friday. And well, this is also part three of three of our three-part series where we talk about my entrepreneurial journey, not because I want to talk about what I got going on, but because there have been a lot of questions about, hey, Joe, how'd you get started? How'd you go from single families to multifamilies? How did you get going? How did you grow so relatively quickly from one apartment community to six apartment communities and closing on two this month, which will be eight and put my company at about 2,000 units. Our assets under management will be about $140 million assets under management in about three years. So this part three is likely what most of the best ever listeners want to know about because this is, we've got talked about my psychology as a non-investor when I had my full-time job, the approach that I took as a single family home investor, and then today we're going to talk about going from zero apartments to 1,400 and about to be 2,000. With us today, Theo Hicks. How you doing, Theo? I'm doing good, Joe. Glad to be back. Yeah, looking good. Looking forward to digging into part three. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, let's go ahead and kick it off. How do you want to approach the conversation? So last time we left off with you having four single-family homes, and I believe we touched on you kind of leaving your job and transitioning from you know, single-family investor and full-time employee to I'm going to jump in feet first into the fire of multifamily. So I'll just toss it up and... Do you want to just maybe talk about that transition a little bit and then we can kind of use that as our foundation and go from there? Yep. 
I was apathetic towards my full-time job. I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. I really enjoyed it up until the point where I didn't. And then when I don't enjoy something, I need to completely forsake it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I will be doing a disservice to whoever I'm partnering with at the time, in this case, the advertising agency, as well as myself and those around me because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So I was studying multifamily, I was attending meetups, and then I was teaching a class in New York on investing, and one of my oldest brother's friends, he lives in Texas, he said, well, I'd like to get into real estate. He's an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur in Dallas. He said, I'd like to get into real estate. Can you share with me the presentation that you've been teaching about single family homes? I'd like to just review it, and then if I have any questions, I'll follow up with you. I shared it with him. We jumped on a call after he read through it. He said, this is great. It looks good. I want to get into real estate. This is very helpful. But if you ever do something larger, let me know. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it. I was like, well, I'm actually like to do something larger. I'd like to get out of my full-time job and I will let you know if I do something larger. Well, I talked to two or three people who I knew in New York and they said the same thing, two or three friends of mine. This is great. If you ever want to partner, mm, wow. let me know. And what I realized is that I had customers before I had a product. And anytime we have customers before we have a product, we're on to something pretty good. Yeah. Compare that to another venture that I was working on and launched unsuccessfully, which was being a consultant to professionals in PR, advertising, and marketing. I wanted to help them climb the corporate ladder relatively quickly like I did. I was the youngest VP of a New York City ad agency, so I wanted to help others do the same. I launched a website had a consulting program outlined, but I didn't hear okay. from anyone. And I realized, yes, it's an honorable venture, but they couldn't pay for the services because they hadn't made it that far yet. And the value exchange of consulting to get them to a higher level, the perception wasn't there for okay. what I needed. Therefore, I scrapped that. I invested $3,000 into a website and it didn't go anywhere, it no longer exists. That was one month, and then I quickly moved towards multifamily investing. I was looking at Tulsa, Oklahoma, originally. Okay. I was looking for a 30-unit apartment building-ish. The challenge that I came across that I didn't expect, and this shows a lot of ignorance on my part, I thought because I owned four single-family homes, Brokers would be falling all over themselves yeah. to try and court me because here I am, a New York City resident, which has some clout, which usually means I have money or people I know have money, and I have an experienced track record of four single-family yeah. homes. I for sure would get a lot of brokers sending me deals. Not the case at all. So I left in January of 2013. January was the month where the consulting thing fell flat with helping marketing and PR okay. professionals. February was the month where I was trying to get these deals, but I wasn't getting any deals. 
So I was like, okay, I've got to do something, a radical change. Late February, I went down to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I met with brokers there. I toured the market, made offers on about eight apartment mm-hmm. buildings afterwards, and literally at the broker's office in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we had contracts, eight of them, lined up on the table, and I was signing each of them. And we didn't do them all at once because they said they didn't want the market to be flooded and then word might get out that someone's trying to buy all these properties and the price would go up or they might not think I was a legitimate buyer, which really, I I guess I wasn't that legitimate of a buyer. I I didn't have the money, but I thought I had some partners. And we did not get any of those deals. I took about maybe three, four weeks to realize that we didn't get any of those deals, any of those eight deals. But then I came across through a broker a property in Cincinnati. Okay. And I never visited Cincinnati at that point, but I realized that there was an opportunity here. We could do it creatively through a master lease. And that basically means best ever listeners, you might be familiar, I know you're familiar with this because you're a loyal listener and you've heard me talk about this or people being interviewed about it, but it's also referred to as a land contract in some states and in some states there's both those terminologies and they mean different things okay so it, it depends on the state and depends on how you structure but we structured it via a master lease and what that allowed me to do is get into the deal without having to mess with the financing part of it which was beneficial because i didn't have to have my investors submit financials we simply took over the existing responsibilities to pay the mortgage and to pay for the operations and also collect the income. So that was a deal I identified through a broker and we ended up closing on it in July of 2013. I brought 12 investors that I knew through life. One of them was the guy in Dallas who initially jump-started me to do something like this as well as the others who I spoke to originally and then eight more people who I knew. And a lot of people ask, how do you get investors for your first deal? So let me answer that question directly. How do you get investors for the first deal? And that is you identify areas that you know people from. For example, Texas Tech Alumni Advisory Board, advertising agencies, Flag football. I have one investor from my flag football team. My oldest brother, a couple of his friends who I also knew. Those are the main categories I can think off the top of my head. And through those categories, I got investors from them. So you identify the categories of how you know people. And then you reach out to one person within each of those categories who is influential and you get them on board mm-hmm. or at least interested then you reference that person when you talk to someone else in that same category for example advertising i had my largest investor he said oh well so and so's in the deal then i know he's fiscally responsible mm-hmm. so sure i'd love to take a look at it and the one who said if so and so's in the deal he was my largest investor 
over $300,000. So it's important to strategically go about it that way. And I have a spreadsheet, the money raising yep. spreadsheet, and best ever listeners, if you haven't gotten this from me, you need to. If you're raising money or thinking about raising money, it's free. Just email info at joefairless.com. That's I-N-F-O at joefairless.com. And we'll get you the money raising spreadsheet. Just ask for the money raising spreadsheet and we'll get you the spreadsheet. Uh, so that's how I did the first deal and then quickly snowballed from there. I think two takeaways for you raising, just raising the money for the first time is that you kind of leveraged the concept of social proof until you found someone who was known to be a credible investor, financially sound, so people knew that if he was going to invest in this deal, then it must be at least be something that's positive and not a complete like fraud or anything like mm-hmm. that. So you kind of you know, use that in order to, to find one person to be interested and then kind of trickle down. So I think that's, that's interesting. I'd be curious to know where you knew about that if you just kind of did it organically. And the other one was, you kind of mentioned how you know, find the customers before the deal versus the deal before the customers. And you kind of said how you know you put those offers in and you didn't necessarily have the money lined up, but mm-hmm. you know that you had the, the interest lined up and that came from your, at least from what you said, your credibility from kind of teaching those single family courses before. So maybe if you've never done that before, I guess what I'm saying, I know that uh, you say in some of your, your YouTube videos or one of the YouTube videos about raising money and how if you don't have experience yourself, you can leverage from someone else, but you yourself had experience and it sounds like you don't necessarily have to have experience in specifically multifamily syndication. You have experience in some sort of real estate or coaching and use that credibility and leverage that to have people, in your case, come to you mm-hmm. before you had to go to them and say, hey, you know, I'd be interested in, in finding a deal. So I think those two things are important. And another thing you kind of promote is the thought leadership platform, which is something that will help with that. One follow-up question on the actual deal itself. You were talking about how you were meeting with brokers in Oklahoma. Was that the broker that brought the Cincinnati deal to you, or was that different that someone else? And how did you how, how did you meet that guy? Different broker, and I met it through someone who I knew. And I would say that the social proof thing, if I fell into it or if I did it consciously, I, I kind of did fall into it. Okay. Looking back on it, though, the number one influencer of purchase intent is word of mouth referrals. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking to have a new customer, in this case it was an investor, then the number one way to convert the person from not being a customer to a customer is through a word of mouth referral. Yeah. Therefore, perhaps subconsciously, I knew it. I didn't consciously go through this approach like, all right, who's most influential? Let me target that person and then we'll roll from there. So that's, but that is what I recommend doing on the, the first one. And then, also, I want to mention that one of the, the largest challenges that I had was establishing that credibility because I thought I was more than qualified. And how I was able to get around that on my first deal was by doing the deal creatively so that traditional investors didn't want to do that. Because there's a large prepayment penalty on the property, therefore, traditional investors mm-hmm. wouldn't touch it because they wanted to put new financing on it because interest rates are really low whereas I was open to doing something creatively and so that's how I got around the credibility factor now how we can get around it and I've talked about this on a lot of videos so I won't spend a lot of time on it but now how we can get around the credibility factor is partner up with either a consultant or partner up with a management company have them invest into the deal 
have equity and then your conversation is yes I don't have as much experience but the management company who's also a general partner with me does and here's the number of units they manage in this particular market mm. and even better if the management company has investors that they bring in the deal and the management company invests money in the deal to be on the general partnership side that's another way to gain credibility starting out I've personally done all these things mm -hmm. I've personally partnered with management companies and done what I just described so those are ways to gain the credibility before you on paper have the credibility through partnerships so I, I wanted to mention those okay so next and you mentioned beforehand I think it's a really good idea let's jump from the beginning of this first deal to the beginning of the second deal because kind of as I said before this I want to say anyone could just do one deal and, and, and they kind of figure it out but I think the best ever listening I said before would help them a lot more if they could hear kind of what you applied or what lessons you learned from the first day that you applied to the, the second deal and how the second deal went since you kind of maybe had some issues in the first one or everything didn't go according to plan or obviously it was your first time ever doing it and so maybe that won't be mm -hmm. just them listening to you kind of stumble your way through it isn't gonna be very helpful but kind of you having the experience of going through one deal now going into the second deal I think that would be as I said before, a lot more helpful for people that are trying to become multifamily syndicators. So do you want to talk about the ins and outs of that, of that second deal, how you found it, how long after you, as you closed on that first deal, did you start even considering doing a second deal? Maybe what the numbers are on that and whatever yeah. else you think is relevant. I paused on acquisitions after the first deal because I wanted to learn as much as I could on the job. I lived in Cincinnati off and on for months at a time living at the apartment community and getting acclimated to what it's like on the ground. Mm. I also wanted to wait to do the second deal just because I just got done with the first and I was just figuring out everything out. I did everything on my own in terms of financing, asset management. The financing was a master lease, so it wasn't that complicated. Mm -hmm. well, it actually was to learn, but then from a bank lending standpoint, there was really not a lot of paperwork. From investor communication to working with the management company, etc. And there's a presentation I do at, at conferences, 10 lessons I learned or 10 mistakes I made on multifamily syndication, and all those 10 have to do with the first deal. <laughs> so from economic versus physical occupancy, pay attention to economic, that's the amount of people who are paying to live there versus physical occupancy, which people who are living there, to making sure you have enough operating capital at the beginning and not just raising enough money for a down payment, which is what I did. And then I had to come out of pocket my own money because I didn't have the operating budget. So I did a bunch of stupid stuff on the first one, but those lessons I learned were then applied to every other deal, thank goodness. And I waited two years. August of 2015 is when I closed on the second deal with my current business partner, Frank. And completely night and day different from the first one to second through six. Okay. And then the, the two were closing this month, which will be seven and eight. And the difference is through the time that I had on the first deal, I realized what I'm good at, what I'm average at, what I suck at. And what I am 
good at. No, I'm exceptional at what I'm exceptional at because we're all exceptional at a couple things and we need Mm -hmm. to give credit where credit's due. Exactly. What I'm exceptional at is connecting with people and marketing. That's what I'm exceptional at. And fortunately, those skills transfer to any industry, well, most industries. And I've chosen an industry where the connection with people thing is very relevant because real estate is a relatively small world, especially commercial real estate, and it's a people business. Okay. So my focus and what I love doing is connecting with investors. I'd say another thing I'm not exceptional but very good at is seeing the big picture and the opportunity knowing which questions to ask. So I can identify the opportunity and I can punch holes in potential opportunities and try and go against doing the deal. And then I can bring the equity, so I bring the money. And then my business partner who has 10 years of experience in this business doing underwriting, created his own financial model and has the asset management experience of half a billion dollars worth of apartments all across the US, he brings to the table those skills. And when we partner up, which we have on the last six deals and the two that we're closing on, we're both able to excel at a very high level because we're both incredibly good at those specific areas. Mm -hmm. And we do overlap some. I do some underwriting. He does some money raising. We both do some asset management, but we have our primary and secondary responsibilities. So in order to scale, because I went from you know four single family homes to then one apartment building, but then straight up, up the ladder on real estate investing when I partnered and I identified, I was honest with myself. We have to be honest with ourselves. Mm. What are we really exceptional at? If we were to compete against everyone else in the world in one category, what do we feel most confident in that category will be for us to have the highest degree of success? And that's something we have to think about and we have to identify because when we identify our special talent, then the money will come assuming that it's an industry that can be monetized, which most industries can be. Therefore, when I partner with him, the second deal, now I'm gonna get specific about the second deal. We bought it for $14 million. That was a year and a half ago. We bought it for 14 million. Two months ago, it appraised for over $21 million and we put in about $2 million. So we're all in at $16 million. It just appraised for $21 million, and it's been about 15 or so months from the time that we acquired it. Returned over 36% of investor equity just on that refinance, mm-hmm. not including the returns that we had paid out up until that point. So all in of over 40% has been returned in less than two years. Incredible. And that's a type of deal that has helped us propel us for future deals. And that's what's helped us grow from two to six. That's amazing that, I mean, you literally did go from, you know, two, four, and then you you did the one apartment complex for two years to do another one. And then now you have six. And so the past, you know, year and a half, two years, you've done five more, about to do two more too. 
and you know at that little inflection point you partner up with someone i know i hear that a lot is that you need like you said commercial real estate's a, a people business so you know maybe and they also talked about kind of how you figured out and still you consciously probably sat down and wrote down like what am i good at what am i not good at to figure out exactly what you're exceptional at and then mm-hmm. some philosophies are focus on your weaknesses and bring those up you're a focus on your strength and find people that are amazing at my weaknesses and partner with them so i know it's a very vague question but how do you do that once, well, you, once you find out your what you're exceptional at how do you find i, I wouldn't have had this definitive answer if i hadn't gone through this experience of mm-hmm. growth definitively focus on your strengths mm-hmm. Focus on your strengths. That's where the money's at. The money's in the area where you're exceptional. We're all exceptional. What are you exceptional at? Identify what you're exceptional at. And then focus on that. Also identify within that business, what are you not exceptional at? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people try and do everything. I tried to do everything in my first deal. A lot of people don't know what they're not good at or they're just not honest with themselves and that's where we get into trouble now the flip side to that is well yeah joe but you don't want to be stupid about the aspects of your business or else if you're ignoring the let's say if you're a fix and flipper and you like to bring the capital but you hate the mechanics of construction management and contractor management If you don't follow the general contractor, then I'm here to tell you that you're going to get screwed over many Mm -hmm. times. And that's true. You will. So you have to have a team member. Either A, you have to have alignment of interest with the general contractor so that he or she is in the deal with you. That way they have the upside potential for the deal and they want to capitalize on that or else they won't get compensated nearly as much as they would. Or you have to have someone on your team who you pay to focus on that. And you do have to be intelligent enough to know all aspects of the business. So I'm not saying be ignorant of all aspects of the business. I'm saying focus on what we're exceptional at and be able to delegate or partner up with people who can focus on the other areas and be intelligent enough to have a BS meter so that Mm -hmm. you can know if you're getting screwed over or not on certain aspects. You don't have to be an expert, but you have to have an accurate BS meter if someone's trying to pull something over on you. Yeah. So definitively, focus on what you're exceptional at. It's stupid to say try and bring up your weaknesses because guess what? You bring up your weaknesses, then your exceptional stuff starts dying down and you meet everyone in the middle. Yeah. Uh, whereas you focus on what you're exceptional at, you bring others who are exceptional at those areas and you rise to the top. It's very obvious. And anyone who says focus on your weaknesses is stupid. They're not an entrepreneur. Yeah. You should be smart enough to know the areas that you're weak and be smart enough to know if someone's trying to screw you over. But other than that, focus on what you're exceptional. So as far as how do you do that? Well, I think if you're a conscious, aware individual, then you should know. Also think about what part of the business do you enjoy the most? Mm -hmm. Because it's highly likely that if you enjoy it, then you're good at it. And it's highly likely if you hate it, then you're not good at it. Yeah. So everyone knows what we enjoy, right? So identify what you enjoy the most 
and then maybe narrow in on what aspects of that enjoyment are you exceptional because it might not be as obvious. And then the last thing I'd say about that is ask others. Ask others around you, hey, I'm just looking for some candid feedback. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Mm -hmm. What do you think in your mind am I best at? And then just pause and then they'll say, okay, do you have any areas where, hey, I've seen others do a little bit better than what I'm doing because they might not want to give you constructive criticism. So just help them along with a safe environment. And that would be my advice. I'm assuming it's it's kind of similar advice to actually finding people to compliment your weaknesses by just being conscious and awake and asking people questions and figuring out what they do, what they like, what they don't like mm-hmm. by having, you said you're a people person, so by having normal conversations. So is that how you found your partner? Just by... Yeah, he had an opportunity, he had a deal, and he was working full-time in the industry at a, a multifamily firm, but he couldn't find anyone to invest with him because he hadn't done a deal on his own before. Okay. And it pissed me off because I saw him and me. I was like, I've been there before and this is a good deal. So yes, let's make this happen. Initially, I said, let me introduce you to some people. And I introduced him to some people who I thought would raise money for him because I was focused on other stuff and they didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. None of them panned out. And I was like, oh, all right. I asked more follow-up questions about the deal. The more and more I learned about it, the more I was like, this makes a lot of sense. And it, it honestly made me upset because here's an entrepreneur who has an opportunity, a deal, has everything lined up, incredibly intelligent, but couldn't get people to buy into his vision mm-hmm. and the opportunities. So I was like, it upset me. And so I was like, all right, we're going to do this together. So I then made it a focus of mine. And when something's a focus of mine, then I am all in. So I raised money. I also introduced him to a couple people. And through those relationships and with my oversight, we brought everything together and we're able to close the deal. And that's how we got the first. And then deals three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, it's been through just my network as well as, you know, he's raised a little bit of capital, but primarily it's been my network and the clients who I have in my consulting program and they raise some money and are on the general partnership side. So collectively it's that, but the first deal, it was something where I identified him as being a good person and then a person who was in a situation that I was in recently at the time and I wanted to help out. That's a perfect example of that, the concept of leveraging someone else's experience and credibility to get a deal done because from his perspective he kind of the only thing he was missing is he just hadn't done a deal himself before and they found you who had done a deal before and so I'm sure that, that helps. I, I want to quickly pivot because we talked about the deals and the, and the partners but um, let's maybe talk about the, the investors a little bit. So you've, you've done six deals so far, two more in the pipeline over like a three and a half year period have the same investor that you started out with, have they continued along with you the entire time? And you know, obviously, you've, I'm sure you've added on more, but could you want to just talk about the maybe how you were able to keep the same investors the entire time? And is that what people typically do? Is that what you recommend people doing? Is 
focus on keeping those investors or focus on finding new ones or do you focus on obviously both at the same time and how you go about doing that? Mm -hmm. Well, organic growth is the type of growth every business wants to have. I did an analysis. I did it a couple deals ago, so it's not exactly up to date, but it's almost up to date, where 48% of all of my investors have invested in multiple deals. And then it was some, I don't even remember the exact figures, but it's something like 25% have invested in three or more. And then I had like 15%, four or more, and then less than 10% had invested in every single one of them. Okay. Almost half had invested in more than one deal. And that's pretty impressive, I believe. Although I don't have... I haven't spoken to someone else to compare mm-hmm. in my same industry, so I'm not okay. exactly sure, but I believe that's a high percentage because a lot of the times you have a certain amount of money to invest, and then once it's gone, you got to wait until you, that deal goes full cycle to invest in something else. So there's a lot of them who are waiting to go full cycle. As far as what I recommend, I mean, ultimately, we're in the business to match up money with deals. And in order to match up the money to the deal, we have to have a constant flow of money coming in. And how we do that, and I didn't realize this at the time, actually I didn't realize this until our conversation, but I talk a lot about thought leadership platforms. Mm And the need for that, you should never ever do a cold call about an investment unless it's a 506C offering, first off. But secondly, you should never do a cold call with any type of real estate investing or any sales because you're not set up for success. You should attract the people. And I hadn't thought about this until our conversation today. My very first investor, he was attracted to my thought leadership platform at the time, which was an in-person meetup. Yeah. I didn't think about that until I proactively started a class in New York City, and this guy in Dallas, through my brother, heard about it. He's like, hey, will you share the presentation with me? I did. So he was initially attracted through a thought leadership platform that I had established. Didn't even think about that. So we have to have something like that. And when we do, then we attract investors. We attract friendships. And I do not bring people in who are best ever listeners from the podcast and bring them into my investments. I don't do that. What I do when people reach out to me from my podcast, I establish a relationship with them. And then through that relationship, I learn about their goals and then we stay in touch. And then over time, perhaps something transpires where there's an investment opportunity after I've established a relationship. That's pretty critical. Now, for any best ever listener who has done a deal because I don't want to only speak to people who haven't done one. I want to speak to sophisticated investors who are looking to get to from level five to level seven. And here's a level five to level seven piece of advice to get more investors Mm -hmm. in the deals. Right now, most likely I'm speaking to people who have already done a syndicated deal. Right now, most likely, they've done deals through 506B. 506B does not allow public solicitation, Mm -hmm. and there aren't as many disclosures as a result of that. 
because you're only talking to people who you know and have a pre-existing relationship with. They are accredited or some can be sophisticated. Go from 506B offering and then do a 506C offering, publicly advertised. If I had a 506C offering, I could solicit investors via this podcast. Mm -hmm. I could take out an ad in the New York Times, say, I got an investment opportunity, wanna invest? I could do whatever I wanted to, to publicly solicit. I could only bring in accredited investors for 506C. How you grow your list of investors as a experienced operator or syndicator is you do a 506C offering, you bring people in from advertising, and then you do a deal with them on a 506C offering. The next deal you do after 506C will be 506B. Because what's gonna happen is with 506C, the investors have to be verified by a third party. And your 506B investors might not like that. So with a 506C, this is the first exposure these investors have had with you. So you just verify them via third party. And then after that deal's done, you now have your old investors, 506B investors, with your new investors, 506C. Then you can do a 506B offering with all of them and you now have lowered the bar for the, that the 506C people are used to doing. So that's easier for them to get approved. Mm-hmm. And the 506B people, they're going along as they have before. Yeah. So to summarize that, mix 506C with 506B to bring in more people. And that will help you grow as well. Ultimately, we're going to grow through performance and... I was having brunch with someone who's in the real estate industry. They sell a certain software. And he said part of his responsibilities are to cold call certain people in the real estate industry. That's ridiculous. Cold calls don't work. And if I were him, and I mentioned this, but it just it didn't resonate. <laughs> if I were him, what I would do is I would create a YouTube channel, a podcast, a blog, or in-person meetup, and invite this target audience to the meetup, have a speaker, or do an interview-based format if it's a podcast, blog, or YouTube channel. And then people within that specific audience will start reaching out to him Mm -hmm. versus him jump on a call, hi, it's so-and-so, I'd like to talk to you about XYZ we should never ever do a cold call and it all goes back to having people be attracted to you versus you reaching out to them without them knowing who you are it's a completely and he even said it's such a different conversation whenever I get an inbound lead then they're like hey I've heard about you tell me what you got to offer versus oh it's so and so I'd like to do you have about five minutes to spare with whatever the opening is So make sure that we're attracting investors to us through one performance because the referrals going back to number one influencer purchase intent is word of mouth. So referrals number one, which I'm proud to say is the number one 
referral point for all my investors is now referrals. It wasn't at the beginning. It was not at the beginning. It was the Texas Tech Alumni Advisory Board, mm-hmm. but now it's referrals. And then once we have the organic growth, then we can grow from there. That last little section there was amazing advice. Because again, going back to the beginning, you kind of summarized it there. If the number one way to get business is through word of mouth referrals, and it seems like one of the best ways to get to attract word of mouth referrals is through a thought leadership platform and plus all the other benefits you get from it as well. It makes sense why you kind of stress that starting that that platform so much and you know, hopefully that guy you were talking about does a YouTube channel he or, won't. or something he at won't. some point in his life. He won't. I've had clients, people who pay me to consult them and they don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But I've stopped trying to understand why people are resistant against some things it's just how life works i remember jim Rohn talking about he told a story where you got some bird seed or no not bird seed you've got a plant seed in your hand and you throw it out into the soil and then not all the seed sprouts up Mm. and why not well sometimes the birds come in and eat some of the seed and fly away or sometimes doesn't happen and why does that happen i don't know but it just doesn't. It's nature. You put your best foot forward. We have these videos. We have these podcast episodes. And I'm telling you, this is how you can make it work. And ultimately, it's up to everyone who's watching and listening to implement it. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy to end with. Cool. Well, Theo, thank you for doing the interview and being on the show. And for everyone who's joining us via video, you have also been accompanied by Jack, our mascot dog, who is snoozing away right now in his little bed. Best ever listeners, I hope you have a best ever weekend, and thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Are you ready to transition your investing from a hobby into a business that has consistent deal flow? The Investor Success Mastermind and Coaching Program can help you accelerate your growth. Find out more at InvestorSuccessMastermind.com That's investorsuccessmastermind.com.